Marshall Krolik, Lee and Long Street at Gettysburg. Thank you very much, March Marshall. March 8th, 1974. Now, as our custom, I might add, uh, uh, turn you over to the group. I'm not shot 25 reservations already. And so, there's no questions, good, we'll leave. Situation, uh, <laughs> Take it in reverse. I don't think it is the um, Delaware Lackawanna. I think <laughs> way to fight a battle, uh, especially in Lord those days. And now it's a different story, to, uh, with modern technology. But in those days, I don't think it was. Special evening. Uh, I don't think any uh, I great want to Civil War general we had a lot did that type of thing. Uh, Jackson tonight. in the Valley was always one of the fighting I go back almost 15 years when uh, my first night. Grant was always meeting. tried to be at least behind the lines in the center where the action was taking place. There's the story of the Lacey House where he's serving the wilderness where he's suddenly whittling on a stick. I looked around, the place was In the same story, you see the couriers are consistently before. going and coming at all over times. Over in the corner was another Lee was accustomed to having Jackson mine. do what he Younger, was... Younger, uglier. ...what they had worked out. Right. The chances there was the best. <laughs> so I went over and introduced myself to Marshall Crowe. I don't think this is the way to fight. Yet over those years, we've had much theory of war. fine times it together in round It is a consistent theme in his writings after the war in letters and things like that that I've read. For instance, a general decides on the plan and then tells his supporters what to do. Team. It's very much like it. Charlie Brown's baseball team. Uh, especially taking into account, he's the Charlie Brown. He's even the if pitcher, such an idea could different work. Charlie, Charlie does a lot of things wrong. He, he never breaks his ankle delivering the ball. He had no business doing such a thing. He didn't. One other he thing was you ought to know: he's going to battlefield for always looking for mini balls. He had to be squatting down there, bending over. Nice of him to show us his best profile. Anybody else? Gordon, you can have it back. Is there, is there any, uh, Thank you, uh, Charlie. I'd like to introduce our next guest, former president, Charles Falkenworth. Is there any I didn't realize that there were going to be so many new people here this evening. Otherwise, uh, uh, I would have uh, perhaps said something a little bit different. Some of you won't understand that Marshall is a man of very strong likes. He has uh, he has so many people that are his very favorites that we Lee thought must that this have time what we ought to do when uh, he is the speaker and rather than present a bust of Lincoln or something like that, like we've done to all the Western attendants all over the South for so many years, we would do something special. And the king was and so a group of us were appointed by Gordon Whitney to go over to the bookstore and browse around, and we all. We're going to I select think that, something that, that Lee we realized that his like. real enemy was and the Army later of the Potomac, on it and but that the best the way to beat the Army of Potomac was Well, as we looked around, some of the things that were voted on, death uh, we saw a thesis by Ed Barnes and the easy way to extricate a mudlocked vehicle on and, battlefields. And told to not only so much as <laughs> closer to the Capitol, but he would have cut Nixon. And then we saw an oil painting of Schimmelfinney and his roommates frolicking together in July 3, 1863. Which was a good one and would have worked, I think. Then there was an original manuscript by our 
the treasurer, Dick Cohen, entitled exactly what, I've, uh, what I've learned as a new southerner, or baggage smashing sure, made easy. And then we, we considered the original screenplay of the movie The Horse Soldiers with the, uh, with the front piece glassy of the male lead eating a chicken dinner. Circumstances would warrant. Some of you might not understand these likes of Marshall, but they're, they're there, believe me. And then um, one that we really like, Charlie Wessel have suggested, we were going to have a, um, a yarmulke of, uh, from feathers plucked from the plume of uh, Jeb Stewart's bonnet. And then there was one suggestion that got a lot of a lot of consideration. It was a daguerreotype showing the rear view of um, some of Marshall's very favorite contemporary people. Uh, Spiro Agnew, Howard Cosell, and Ron Santo streaking. Uh, we respected all of these uh, these votes, and finally we decided instead of getting any of those, we decided to save the money and give them the same old fuss we give everybody else. But to make the evening complete, we decided to send yeah, Roberta Krolik a complete true, list of all the downstate Illinois antique refinishers. <laughs> Uh, Thank you, to march across John. his front. I would now like to call on Bob Waller. That's correct. I think there's no question but that the Longstreet uh, theory prevailed there, but it was a defensive theory. And here at Gettysburg, when Gordon he was trying to get him to do something about two and a half weeks ago, he Longstreet said, Bob, did. he said, we got a problem. He said, all the speakers I'm going to have at the table. In my opinion, there seems to be a mania here that goes back to the teachings brotherly love of West Point and back to the Mexican War. As we go through the Eastern campaigns, we find inevitably a Union general or a Confederate gets in the about this. A massive man. I got a march shoulder to shoulder. I come up with a And this is the old theory of warfare. One thing I did do for Marshall, though, I was down in Memphis. And, and, and while I was in Memphis, when you when you talked about friend of mine original me over to the Nathan B. Course home, uh, was the Emmitsburg Road, and an we were having dinner. Once again, it shows if you look at the map first, you know, and they said he's going back to the Mexican and they were War. Reminiscent and if you look at Pope at Manassas, if you look at Grant, and he said, you know, they told me about the general. Yeah, very famous the war. Same thing all over again. He and I think some of the if we look at that in the in light, country, that these men to are reminiscent of the past all the many of fought, and it has a lot to do I with it. I would agree, gosh, and I think you even take it one step farther. And, and they said, oh, yeah, they're up in the attic. Criticism of Lee, so and he said, well, never, at least go up at Gettysburg, didn't at realize that he couldn't afford the type of losses that Grant could afford in 64. And after about an hour, I came across this one, and I just had to ask battle because was, I knew exactly Marshall would love it. And, uh, you know, it's Nathan B's force reminiscent of, of Colonel Grierson at the Battle of Bryce's Cross. Interesting to point out and here it is. <laughs> and Marshall, I save that for you. I want you to have it. And Johnson made his response. Thank you very much, Bob. We'll go to the other end of the table. Southern I'd like to call on Mr. Brooks Davis. Guarded. Nobody there. But the strange thing was that that half hour was the only time that there was nobody well, speaking there. Speaking of uh, Gerson, if he had gotten Bob, there at seven, uh, I was a little confused about this evening. He would have found read, uh, Union Ralph's, troops there. Uh, During the night, that area was garrisoned by um, Gary's division of the 12th Corps. They uh, were ordered 
and Longstreet at Gettysburg. And it's confusing they were because uh, the sickers, I've always known, Marshall, Gary misunderstood the order. He thought that he was supposed to leave immediately without waiting for Sickles. And I thought perhaps he did. Visionary work. Johnston, he leaves. Johnston comes, finds nobody there. Johnston leaves, and Sickles comes. As far as I know, he wasn't there. Only during that one half hour was there nobody there. A little later this evening. But on second thought, I, I thought perhaps Marshall is possibly coming over to our side. Bob you Douglas and I had for years. Bob finally gave up. The more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, on the hopes troops. And so to embrace this, I put on my son's Confederate veterans uh, badge. And Marshall, I brought along a cow here, which is a replica of the badge that I'd like to give to you to have you put in some suitable place. if Hood would have tried that, he would have had no choice but to interest in the Confederacy. I've also brought along a flag to on the reverse slopes, an intimate Lee token of something First really meant something been to cut the two. Confederacy. Because the Federals could this have flag, easily penetrated uh, Longstreet and Anderson. Uh, is an uh, earlier battle flag. Hill, where there was a large gap already. And you notice it. it and so uh, his meade would have been kind of distance between the waves, two wings you know, it looks of, uh, like Lee's flag army. Of truce. And, uh, and I, I thought perhaps this might be useful to you a little later on. Thanks very much, Brooks. We'd now like to introduce you Every time Vice I have given this talk, the question has been asked, and it's a very good question. Um, you know, it's one of those great things, you know, if, uh, who knows. I think that if Jackson would have been at Gettysburg, the whole battle would have been different. One thing, one thing Marshall has always there. told me but assuming for a moment that it would have been before there, you get up, the whole thing would have been different. Because first of all, Jackson humble. would have been on the humility. federal flag. Well, I'll tell you, I've never been so humiliated uh, in all my life. I've sat around and waited all day, and he would have and, not have had a march like Longstreet. And when Gordon asked me like, to talk tonight, like he suckered which, me into it, if you've ever gone over and he ground, said it would be a pleasure. They, did. they were seen. That on march the, was seen uh, trips from that we've taken to Gettysburg, and yet for two and a half we've always been burdened with a certain area of the battlefield. If you look on the map, it says Cadore Farm, right down there. And, uh, I don't, in case you're not familiar with the Godori farm, I'm not a great if you look at any of Marshall's boots, you'll see some of it in there. It's from the barn. Every <laughs> time the bus went anywhere near it, it was pointed out to Godori farm. We went to Antietam last fall, Dan Vetter, Gordon, Marshall and myself, a little trip, four days. We finally had to leave Antietam oh. and go up to see the Kadori farm. On the first day, uh, so, there's no question. In researching around, we found a picture. Uh, of Jackson. the Kadori farm. Uh, Jackson it's an original. Heights before we know it's an original because it has happening. the Park District Jackson sign on front of it that says Kadori Farm. And we have the original folder here. And we're going to present this. It's signed even yours truly B.S. Kadori. Now, I'd like to also continue. It has been the custom in the past. You know, as far as the too dark, no. The the but route through the town was at 4 o'clock. Uh, uh, Lee sent a courier to Ewell telling him to attack at practice. And also, I didn't know whether I'd be awake uh, for Suggesting that he attack at practice at 4.30. I heard this talk he's going to give me. This was the middle of July. Milwaukee. Certainly, the light was more than I adequate say any more about for it, quite a bit of fighting yet on the day. Keep in mind Marshall, that 
you will attack on the second day at seven o'clock. But I want to tell you. So obviously, if there was enough light on the second day, there would have been enough light on the first day. And we do care. As to the other suggestion, yes. Well, it's not a southern question of Longstreet being a southern. It's Lee. Lee was chivalry, knight of old, southern gentleman. All of that went to make up his personality, and it's for that reason that I don't think the pressure that was used at Gettysburg. Southerners uh, hold him out to be. He was a great man, and he was kind to his troops, and all of these. And we'd like you to take this as a memento this evening. And when you come to these meetings, go into the John, plug it in the shaver, shaver outlet, and see if you get the bags out of your names. Thank you. 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 I'm, I'm still humiliated. Well, that's, of course, it's true. And that's one of those things that's hard to explain. But you see, you've got to take two things into account. Thank you very much, Ward. First of all, I think the biggest thing in Cemetery Ridge was morale. Uh, the Southern troops, uh, you could have shut off a pop gun and they would have run like hell. Uh, the Army of the Potomac, for all of its losses, the Army of the Potomac was a great army. The generals were lousy. Until Meade, who I think, you know, Meade does not get the credit that she is due for Gettysburg or for the battles after <laughs> But occur, uh, the Army of the Potomac was one hell of a good army, and there's no way, there's it's absolutely been said no way recently that, had that Lee would have been, been able to pull a missionary Moses Ridge or anything else in the Army. Now have only three commandments. First of all, their position was different from Missionary Ridge in that it was... Bent at both ends, so that either end was closer to the center. An advisor to Lee we or Meade, we'd have um, had 10 days at Gettysburg. this, I think, is the important. Um, at one time during Our the news gets back to you, the evening, his, and whatever he was stretch doing, it into the night. Uh, at one time during time the second day, Longstreet's attack on the second day, Culp's Hill was held by us. one brigade. To the Green's brigade was the only brigade on Culp's Hill, because Meade was just sending Let all the troops there to support better known titles. Uh, the, the Cemetery Ridge the position. Shimmer, but you will never attack nobody until knows. 7 o'clock when everybody had already come back. Nor cares about it. It's, it's a perfect example of a Ben Butler, uh, pioneer situation. advocate of woman's uh, Hill and Ewell are perfect examples of the Peter Principle. Brothers in blue. As high as they could, and then they were worthless. So many examples that after the Civil War, you could have a address. A strange friendship, Ulysses S. Grant and Emma Willard. <laughs> he has also edited a, edited yeah, a few that's very true. And it, well, it, I, I shouldn't uh, in most Emmanuel of his battles, of his battles till 64. Booth. Um, <laughs> but he had a Jackson. Renewal in the South he had a Jackson to go out and do the offensive striking, and he had a Longstreet to sit there and wait for the hammer to push it against the anvil. Uh, in 64, How to steal when the quality of his generalship general changed, I think he did get a little more specific. How to make friends and also and he was fighting a different war in Stanton. Stanton. It was trench warfare. And four years is a long time. By and it was a completely different situation. The enemy was attacking him. He really he is also question of discretion or no Dan discretion Weinberg was not there. Discretion is most important in offensive situations, the book of not in defensive situations. And after 64, Lee was Gentlemen, I take subdued pleasure in saluting the Civil War Roundtable's answer to the exorcist. Smelling salts and stay awake pills are available for those who will well, undoubtedly Well, for first thing, because uh, the Union troops were on the test of the hill behind the Civil War. And the, uh, 
Thank you very, very much, Ralph, and gentlemen, for your most honest-handed remarks. So much smoke. Very appreciated. Civil War artillery. Marshal, they really couldn't see what one of our members who couldn't be with us this evening. Then too, you had the problem. But he was kind enough to General Hunt did a job on Pendleton, which I would like to read at this time. On Alexander. I shouldn't say a letter. It's a bunch of guns. You might call it a poem. First of all, Hunt ordered the Union guns to stop firing. So right then. Alexander felt me. that he had silenced the guns Within or else they the were out of ammunition. Of War, Second of all, he ordered the withdrawal Supreme. of a battery from the clump of trees all within his grasp. The stone wall. The when uh, Alexander saw, saw that, in fact, that's the, the famous message which triggered charge, come quick, the 18 guns are gone. Gives you the impression uh, that he thought the Union's were, troops were pulling out and the barrage had had him. In fact, all Hunt was doing was shifting a battery that was out of ammunition for a freshman. And by the time the charge started, there were 18 and more guns back there again. You get to but know the Confederates Jack just didn't realize because of the smoke and the, hills, and the explosions. And, how they and the fact the that, and this is a strange thing, most of the, the Union troops came forward during the barrage, came over on the other side of the stone wall and down on the front side of the slope because they realized the Confederates were <laughs> and he they said they learned a scholar on the war the between the states. He's memorized the general their ages are so weak. Further examination. Sidney Johnson weighed in 1863. You I don't think term. this kind of a commander builds a general in the front of Fraser's farm. That's very, very true. He knows all about the skirmishing along the Rapidan. Jackson was very close-mouthed. He never shared with his subordinates the orders that he had received. The they didn't know what he was doing. He'll they had no idea. If Jackson had ever been, covered been, bloody well, lane, it's a perfect lane. example of Chancellorsville. Plus tactics used uh, by Jackson intended to continue to attack and to try and interpose between the Union Army and the river at his and cut off their retreat. Best. But nobody knew this that's what he wanted he to do, so nobody did it. Of course, Hill was shot, the and there was a void of command he makes you feel but nobody knew that's what he intended to do. He never told his subordinates, so they never had an opportunity to participate in the planning, <laughs> to, to take initiative, you to, to learn how to exercise and discretion. It's a very good point. They gives you all the latest spice from Widow Taps abode. He fords the Chickahominy, he talks to Jacob he lets you know who fired the gun that toppled Bishop Pope. You want to know what Hooker did inside the devil's gun? Just ask our friend, he'll paint the how and what and when. He'll take you out Fairfield Road and stop at Burnside Bridge. An excellent point. your ears with what went wrong atop McPherson's Bridge. He knows the round tops inch by inch by boulder, stone, and rock. He tells the major role Oh yes. By oh, yes. He sent Stuart around to the back, or to the East he Cavalry battlefield, solely for the purpose of attacking from the rear, as Longstreet was attacking, Pickett was attacking from the front. The only problem with that is that Stuart got his rear end with by Greg and Custer, and he never got around to the rear. Well, first of all, Stuart, in another exercise of his brilliance, no Stuart fan, uh, uh, he, he, he got up on a position on the ridge up there, 
Georgia and instead, instead of you know Tonight, hiding the fact he was there, he fires off a cannon. For what purpose has never been explained, but he fired off a cannon. Greg, and who had just given the approval for Custer to go back to the left flank, said, wait a minute, you know, who's over there? And, and Greg and Custer took up their positions and, and beat him when he tried to attack. If he hadn't fired that cannon, it might have been a completely different story. I don't know what he was doing, cleaning the board or something, but the gun was fired at his specific, at Stewart, personal specific order. And he's never, never in any of his reports explained why. As a general. Well, it's not really. One who has general. been given the qualities of mind, soul, and body. Lee. Lee. Longstreet couldn't order Stuart him because to uh, of men Stuart was equal. Stuart was an equal. Stuart was a corps commander. And finally to love and cherish. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, yeah. enough about me. The, 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 the timing was uh, Let me was introduce our speaker. And Longstreet was supposed to attack. Stuart was supposed to attack. too much of on many subjects. But he had already, he had already <laughs> fired off his signal gun saying, here Baseball. I am, come get me. Government. And he got Journalism. beat. Baseball. Of course, Lee had no way of knowing War. that because Peace. the distance between their, the Union Army was between he and Stuart. He had no way of knowing that Stuart had been beaten. And the man who was responsible for bringing to the world's attention the dubious General Schimmelfinger. <laughs> but I have learned from this man in regards to the Civil War field. I mean things that you don't find in the history books. I never knew Robert E. Lee's name. The real name was Robert E. Leibowitz. And I always thought that hardtack was a hard cracker, when in reality they were called bagels. <laughs> and I always, I never knew that, I always thought that Sal Belly, Sal Belly, and here it's called Lodge. Of course, now we, we test Marcy Marshall before we invited him to be here this evening. Don, you see, that's, the, that's my whole point. I agree with you in this respect. When it was quiet and he was sitting in his tent writing letters to his wife or planning strategy in Richmond with the cabinet or talking to Longstreet in a tent on the Rapidan or Rappahannock, he, that's the way he was. But as soon as he got into a battle where the guns were firing and the troops were charging and the flags were waving, he lost his cool. His adrenaline started pumping, and he only could he all he could do was fight. And I think that is the difference. Well, seriously, we, we have had a lot of fun this evening at Marshall's expense. But in spite of what has been said here, we are glad to have Marshall as our speaker, one of the real leaders of this round table, a man who has served in every post from the president on down and is now serving as our editor of the newsletter. He is the originator of our monthly quiz, which is currently being published by Civil War Times, Illustrated. But I think few people know Gettysburg like Marshall. He has been visiting and studying the campaign since he was eight. I have had the privilege of spending hours and days with him, walking and going over the battlefield, listening to the results of his years of study and research. The theory that he has founded and developed from a constant study of books, diaries, and letters on that eventful July 3rd brings a new insight into an old controversy <laughs> and is establishing Marshall as a national authority on that battle. So, gentlemen, and it's a, it is a real treat for me to introduce a great campaigner and a very dear friend, Marshall D. Crowley. Good night. <laughs> I work 
all week long on thinking of something witty to say when I stood up here before I got into the speech. And after this, which is, of course, a complete surprise, there's no way that I'm going to say what I thought of because <laughs> that, that would even be ridiculous. I thank all of you gentlemen for your kind remarks. I know that you really meant to say how much you love me. <laughs> and I don't blame you. But it does give me a great deal of pleasure and an honor to stand in the footsteps of such eminent gentlemen as Victor Searcher, <laughs> Dr. Mudd, and the Reverend Landry Janofsky, who have thrilled this group for hours and hours on end. <laughs> Only tonight I do not have a book to sell or a relative long dead to get a pardon for. I only want to just spread some peace and love throughout this group, for as one of the speakers before me said, there's an awful lot of hate in this room. And the first person to decide to streak during my speech is going to get shot. Into the work at hand. As the remnants of the divisions of Pickett, Pettigrew, and Trimble came slowly back to Seminary Ridge on July 3rd, 1863, Robert E. Lee was heard to exclaim several times, quote, all this has been my fault, close quote. If, as has been assumed, he was placing the blame for the loss of the Battle of Gettysburg on himself, truer words were never spoken. This fact becomes even more tragic to the cause of the Confederacy when it is realized that the Union did not win a victory at Gettysburg the Army of Northern Virginia lost one. True, the Army of the Potomac fought bravely there under skillful leadership, but even so, it could have been beaten. In fact, it probably should have been beaten. The answer to why it was not is to be found not only in the events that took place in the various headquarters on Seminary Ridge during those three fateful days, but also in the minds and spirits of three of the principal actors in the drama. First, Robert E. Lee, second, James Longstreet, and third, the Army of Northern Virginia itself. To begin our examination, we must go back to May of 1863, for it was then, during a month of seeming Confederate glory, that the seeds of defeat in Pennsylvania were sown. The first such seed occurred when Lee won what many have called his greatest victory, Chancellorsville, a brilliant combination of planning and fighting. Yet out of that success came a dangerous sickness, a cancer that was to fester and grow for the next 60 days. The name of this disease was overconfidence, and it struck both the army and its leader. The men fervently believed in the almost deity of Robert E. Lee. With him at their head, they could not be beaten, and so they would follow him anywhere. Their morale was at its highest pitch. This feeling was returned by Lee to the army a hundredfold, for he began to regard his troops as supermen. After Gettysburg, Lee would realize that this feeling had existed within himself before the battle. On July 4, 1863, he said to Colonel Fremantle, quote, I thought my men were invincible, close quote. He wrote in a letter on July 26th, quote, the army did all it could I fear I required of it impossibilities, close quote. And again, in a letter to Davis on July 31st, quote, I alone am to blame in perhaps expecting too much of its prowess and valor, close quote. The second occurrence of importance during that eventful month took place on May 10th. 
This was, of course, the death of Stonewall Jackson. It triggered a decision by Lee to effectuate a reorganization of his army. The first step was to expand the number of corps from two to three. However, to find experienced and qualified leaders for the second corps, once Jackson's, and the new third corps, and for the divisions, brigades, and regiments within them, proved a difficult, if not impossible, task. Promotions were made, but few, if any, of the promoted officers had experience in handling larger bodies of men. They did not realize that their old staffs were inadequate in quantity and quality for their increased duties. Many had never before worked with or did not like fellow brigade or division commanders. Lafayette McClaws was to admit after the war that he had never spoken ten words with Jubal Early and would not know him if he saw him. McClaws and Hood were engaged in a verbal feud Hill and Longstreet were not on good terms. Ewell had not been with the Army for 10 months and, in fact, had only previously served directly under Lee for approximately 30 days. Lee hardly knew him. Under circumstances like these, could the necessary degree of coordination and cooperation be expected to occur? Thus, as it set out on its most important campaign, the Army of Northern Virginia looked at itself as at its peak as a fighting unit, but in another respect it was at its worst because of poor, untested organization and inexperienced generals. That Lee must have realized this is evident from a letter to Hood written May 21, 1863, in which he said, quote, Our army would be invincible if it could be properly organized and officered, but there is the difficulty, proper commanders. Where can they be obtained?" Close quote. Yet, as we shall see, at the critical moment, Lee failed to remember this shortcoming and instead permitted his overconfidence to control. Equally as important, Lee apparently did not realize that the offensive striking capability of the Army had been damaged if not destroyed. Jackson was gone. He had been the lightning bolt, the attacker who led the brilliant flanking movements who carried the battle to the enemy. Who was to replace him? Not Ewell and Hill, the new and inexperienced Corps commanders, maybe in time, but for now they could not be counted on. That left only the veteran commander of the First Corps, the war horse, James Longstreet. In this vital campaign, could he fill Jackson's shoes? If Lee did not already know that Longstreet's desire for the defensive would dictate a negative answer to this question, a series of events which also occurred in May 1863 should have convinced him and affected not only his opinion of his army, but also his tactics in the future. Longstreet had not been at Chancellorsville. Instead, he and two divisions of his corps were returning from the Suffolk campaign, an expedition which had degenerated into little more than a foraging trip. However, it had been Longstreet's first taste of independent command, and despite his poor performance, that sample had greatly increased his, his opinion of himself as a strategist. His ego was further inflated when on the way back to the Army he had stopped in Richmond and had been invited for an interview with the Secretary of War. Seddon solicited Longstreet's opinions on the Vicksburg situation, and the latter proposed a status quo in the East and West, while he, with two divisions, reinforced Bragg for an offensive against Rosecrans. 
This Longstreet felt would draw troops from Grant and Hooker, thus relieving the pressure on Pemberton and Lee. While the Secretary of War did not approve the plan, Longstreet left Richmond feeling that it had become his prerogative to devise as well as to execute, to dictate strategy as well as direct tactics. Rejoining the Army, Longstreet found that Lee was in the process of obtaining government approval for an immediate invasion of the North. Longstreet disagreed and repeated his plan for reinforcing Bragg, but Lee rejected it because of total unwillingness to divide his army in the face of the enemy. There then followed from May 18th through June 3rd a series of conversations between Lee and Longstreet, out of which has arisen phase one of the so-called Gettysburg Controversy, a debate that has lasted 110 years. Lee explained, as he had to the Confederate cabinet during meetings from May 14th through the 17th, that in his opinion, sending troops from his army to reinforce either Pemberton or Bragg might save Mississippi but lose Virginia. On the other hand, he felt that a successful invasion of the North by the Army of Northern Virginia would accomplish the relief of Vicksburg by drawing federal attention and troops away from the citadel on the river. In addition, it would disrupt federal plans for summer campaigns in Virginia and on the North Carolina coast, would enable the Army to feed itself and capture supplies in areas not previously foraged over, and most important, would encourage the success of the Northern Peace Party, now at a high peak of activity in its efforts to bring about a truce and peace negotiations. Longstreet disagreed, but realized that Lee and the government were determined to carry out the invasion. In Longstreet's own words, as written in Battles and Leaders, quote, I then accepted his proposition to make a campaign into Pennsylvania, provided it should be offensive in strategy, but defensive in tactics, forcing the Federal Army to give us battle when we were in strong position and ready to receive them. One mistake of the Confederacy was in pitting force against force. The only hope we had was to outgeneral the Federals. The war had advanced far enough for us to see that a mere victory without decided fruits was a luxury we could not afford. Our numbers were less than the Federal forces, and our resources were limited while theirs were not." Close quote. Lee listened to this proposal with politeness and tact, partly because it was his nature to do so, and partly because he agreed with the military logic put forth by Longstreet. These same thoughts had been formulated by Lee before conferring with Longstreet. Lee, too, had seen the defensive lessons of Malvern Hill, Groveton, and Fredericksburg, had realized the emptiness of victories like Second Bull Run, Chancellorsville, after which the Army of the Potomac had been able to retreat, refit, recruit, and come out again as strong as ever. Before the campaign began and before Longstreet's pronouncements, it was Lee's intention, one, to give battle only on ground of his own choosing, and two, that such battle, probably occurring far from his supply base, would be a defensive one. But in allowing Longstreet to expound in this manner, even though he agreed with him, Lee was wrong. What right does a subordinate have to condition his acceptance of his commander's plan? What right does he have to insist that a campaign be fought his way? Lee should have thanked Longstreet for his views and firmly reminded him 
that the campaign and any resulting battle would be fought Lee's way, as dictated by Lee's opinion of the existing conditions. By not dressing his lieutenant down, Lee left Longstreet with the proud belief that the offensive strategy defensive tactics plan was Longstreet's own and that Lee had promised to obey it. That Lee made no such promise is clear, but that Longstreet honestly thought he had is equally clear. Longstreet's reaction on July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, when he believed this promise had been broken, is a matter we shall take up shortly. The campaign had not yet started, and already Lee had made the mistakes of first overconfidence, second failure to fully appreciate the effect on his army of reorganization and Jackson's loss, and third, the mishandling of Longstreet. Now, as the march began, he made another error, as grave as the others. He totally underestimated the vanity and impulsiveness of his headline-happy cavalier, J.E.B. Stewart. On June 22nd and 23rd, Lee wrote Stewart that if the latter felt that two of Stewart's five brigades would be sufficient to guard the Blue Ridge Passes, Stewart could take the other three brigades into Maryland. The orders were clear that the main function of the cavalry during the campaign was to take position on the right of Ewell's Corps, which led the invasion, and keep Lee advised of the enemy's movements. However, the route to Ewell's flank, including the place of crossing the Potomac and the possibility of passing around the Army of the Potomac before joining Ewell, were left to Stuart's questionable discretion. The movements of the Confederate cavalry and the decisions made by Stuart in the Gettysburg campaign would be a fine topic for a talk. Certainly tonight there is no time for a full discussion. Suffice it to say that Lee should have known that Stuart's pride had been hurt at Brandy Station. The Southern press had criticized him severely for being surprised in his camp on June 9th, just one day after the grand review he had held for Lee's benefit. Could there be any doubt that when faced with a choice, Stuart would now choose the road that led to glory, to revenge for his embarrassment? And what could create greater publicity than another storied ride completely around the Federal Army? Only this time his opponent was not the stationary McClellan. Lee should have given Stuart specific, not discretionary orders. He should have tied him to Ewell's flank with a rope if necessary. What could be more important to Lee during this campaign than news of Federal movements? Nothing which could in any way endanger this vital pipeline of information should have been led, left to chance or to the whims of a gallivanting glory hound. In making this ride, Stuart acted within his orders, but the orders should not have been given. Thus, the primary fault lay not with Stuart, but with Lee. Stuart left the brigades of Robertson and Jones, his weakest, to guard the Blue Ridge and the supply line in the Shenandoah Valley. Only the poorly organized, non-disciplined, independent commands of Jenkins and Imboden traveled with the Army, and Lee failed to even attempt to utilize them for reconnaissance. Imboden was sent west of the Army to forage, and Jenkins traveled ahead of Ewell to scout the advance. Clinging to the daily hope of a report from Stuart, Lee was thus without one word of the location of the Army of the Potomac 
from the day he lost contact with his plumed crusader until the night of June 28th. On that evening, the spy Harrison reported to Longstreet's headquarters at Chambersburg with the first information that the Union Army was north of the Potomac. In fact, it was in the area of Frederick and South Mountain, threatening the Confederate rear. Lee's reaction was the correct one. He determined to move out of the mountains where he could not feed his army and concentrate his scattered forces to the east, thus drawing the Federals away from his lines of retreat and supply, which could have been cut if the enemy had crossed South Mountain. The movements on the 29th and 30th were slow because of the uncertainty of the location of the Army of the Potomac, the overcrowding of the roads, and a heavy rainstorm which fell on the 29th. On the 30th, Pettigrew's brigade of Hill's Corps encountered Federal cavalry west of Gettysburg on the Chambersburg Road and withdrew to Cashtown. By that night, Hill's Corps had concentrated at Cashtown, with Longstreet between that place and Chambersburg. Ewell was on his way back from the York-Harrisburg area with two divisions, while his third division, Johnson, was between Hill and Longstreet. The next day, July 1st, 1863, Heath's division, with Hill's approval, went looking for shoes and found a battle which on that first day just grew like topsy. Lee was on the Chambersburg Road west of Cashtown when he first heard the sound of the guns. He had just left Longstreet, who was waiting for Johnson's division to pass and clear the road. Lee rode forward to Cashtown, where Hill informed him that Heath was under orders not to force an action until he was supported. Continuing on, Lee reached Gettysburg about 2 o'clock and found Heath and Pender engaged in a desultory action. Lee made no attempt to force the fight, as he had no knowledge of what confronted him. However, at 3 o'clock, Rhodes' division of Ewell came in from the north at right angles to the line of battle and attacked. Even though Rhodes was soon heavily pressed by newly arrived federal troops, Lee denied Heath's request to go to Rhodes' aid, stating, quote, I am not prepared to bring on a general engagement. Longstreet is not up, close quote. However, the situation was changed when about 4 o'clock, Early's division came on the field on a road which placed it squarely on the federal right flank. This obvious opportunity caused Lee to change his mind, and he ordered a general advance all along the line. The result was the well-known route of the Union troops through the streets of the town to the heights to the south and southeast. The time was 4.30. At this point, by coincidence and accident, the Army of Northern Virginia, which had not sought a fight, had won a stirring, if small-scale, victory. What now? Lee felt that he would be in full control if he could drive the Federals off the heights without bringing on the general engagement he was trying to avoid. Hill's Corps was badly used up, so if the job was to be done, it must fall to Ewell. We have now come to the first of many critical decisions Robert E. Lee will be forced to make in these three days of battle. And, as in the case of each decision, his action will not, in the glow of hindsight, be the proper one. But also, as is true of each decision, he will come to the only conclusion he is capable of. Capable of not because of the situation on the battlefield or the condition of his army, but capable of because of the limitations of his own character, his own temperament, his own mental processes. 
The Army of Northern Virginia will not lose this battle because the soldiers do not fight, but because its commander is not the right man for this time and this place. When called upon to explain his theory of high command, Lee stated that the commanding general should not attempt to direct the battle tactically. This explains his penchant for discretionary orders. However, discretionary orders can be used only when the reaction and good judgment of the subordinate can be presumed, as in the case of Jackson. But Lee had misread Stuart, and now he misread Dick Ewell. Lee, on Seminary Ridge, could see the Federals streaming out of the town and up the heights. He sent an aide to Ewell with the message that, in Lee's opinion, it was only necessary to push those people to get possession of the heights. Lee suggested that Ewell do so, quote, if practicable, close quote. Then he added that he would soon come over to see Ewell. As we all know, Ewell did nothing, and the heights were never taken. If they had been, the entire Union line would have been rendered untenable and the Baltimore Pike exposed. Why Ewell did not move is also a topic for another night. The oft-raised question as to whether the heights could have been taken is irrelevant. The point is that an attempt should have been made to take them, and so the blame must fall on Lee, who did not order that attempt made. In his report, Lee explained this discretionary order to Ewell by saying that he was not sure of the strength of the enemy and the condition of the Second Corps. If this is true, why shift the burden of ascertaining these facts to Ewell, a man with whom Lee had no personal experience? Why didn't Lee himself go to the Second Corps front to determine the situation? By saying he'd come soon, he gave Ewell the perfect opportunity for avoiding the issue by waiting for his commander. What was holding Lee on Seminary Ridge where the fighting had ceased? The only answer can be found in Lee's belief that a commander does not tactically direct the battle. Between 5 and 6 o'clock, Longstreet arrived on Seminary Ridge and joined Lee. For 5 or 10 minutes, Longstreet used binoculars to study the position being taken by the Union Army. Its natural defensive strength impressed him. Imagine his astonishment when Lee informed him that the Confederates would attack those heights the next day. Thoughts raced through Longstreet's mind. What had happened to his beloved plan of offensive strategy, defensive tactics, and the promise to follow it, which Longstreet believed Lee had made? Had Lee forgotten Fredericksburg and Malvern Hill? Lee listened to Longstreet's protestations and then said, pointing to the heights, quote, if the enemy is there tomorrow, we must attack him, close quote. Longstreet replied that, quote, if the enemy is there tomorrow, it is because he is anxious we should attack him, a good reason for not doing so, close quote. At this point, Longstreet made for the first time his now controversial proposal for a move to the right a flank march around the federal left to interpose between the Army of the Potomac and Washington. This, he said, would enable Lee to establish a defensive position on ground of his own choosing. There, he could await the federal attack, which must come 
if the Army of the Potomac was to preserve its supply line and safeguard its capital. In such an attack, Longstreet went on, the Union troops would be destroyed completely. Confederate victory on the heights of Gettysburg would leave Lee's army so badly hurt itself that once again its enemy would escape to regain its strength. Lee heard Longstreet out, but said little and did not change his mind. Thus he had made his second battlefield decision and probably the most important one of all. In order to examine it, we must see the alternatives. There were four. First, Lee could retreat by the way he had come. This he discarded because of the danger of such a move in the face of the enemy and also for the reasons that it caused him to move east out of the mountains. Second, he could await attack where he was. But this was ruled out because his line was not strong defensively. He would be unable to provision his army where he was, and his line of retreat could result in a bottleneck in the mountains. Third, Lee could adopt Longstreet's plan for a movement to the right. Lee's pronounced reason, stated after the battle, for not making this choice was that the absence of his cavalry would necessitate the movement being made blindly without knowledge of where the enemy was in relation to Lee's march. The fourth alternative was to attack the Federals where they were, and this Lee chose to do. <clears throat> was he right in not following Longstreet's proposal? It is hard to say, but I think not. The point about his absent cavalry is a good one. Yet he did have Jenkins' irregulars on his left with Ewell. Granted, they were inefficient and undependable, but he never even gave them a chance to reconnoiter the feasibility of the move to the right. Certainly, the movement to the right was in keeping with his announced plan of the campaign, that is, of not giving battle so far from his base of supply unless it was defensively on ground of his own choosing. But a discussion of whether the plan of a move to the right was good or bad is not the point. The main issue is did Lee ever even really consider this alternative on July 1st? Did he ever give an ear to Longstreet's arguments and proposals in favor of the move to the right? He listened, but did he hear? To this question, my answer is an emphatic no. Again, we must look within Robert E. Lee the man. When we do, we find not only overconfidence in what his army could accomplish, but also a love of battle. The roar of the guns and the smell of the powder made his adrenaline flow. His very nature was taken over by a prevailing sense of combativeness, and, as Longstreet later wrote, quote, he got his blood up, close quote. Even so great an admirer of Lee as Douglas Southall Freeman remarked on Lee's ability to put aside the butchery of war in favor of its pageantry. Perhaps the point can be best illustrated by recalling Lee's comment after Fredericksburg, quote, it is well that war is so terrible, we should grow too fond of it." Close quote. The taste of victory on July 1st had made Lee grow too fond of battle, and so he forgot the lessons of prior battles in favor of an attack that was the antithesis of everything he had planned to do. Longstreet finally realized that Lee had made up his mind, and so he lapsed into a pouting silence. Lee questioned him about the whereabouts of his two divisions, Hood and McClaws. But Longstreet gave a vague and almost disrespectful response. Pickett, with Longstreet's third division, it will be remembered, had been left as a rear guard at Chambersburg under orders to come up as soon as Imboden's cavalry relieved him. Lee urged Longstreet to hurry Hood and McClaws as they would be needed the next day. 
but Longstreet argued that if an attack was planned, it should be made immediately. Lee did not agree, pointing to the lateness of the hour. It was now well past 6 o'clock, and the fact that he wished to wait until Longstreet's troops were up. At this point, Lee and Longstreet parted, a disgruntled Longstreet riding back to his men, and Lee finally making the promised visit to Ewell on the left. When Lee reached Second Corps headquarters, it was dusk, about 7.30. He sat down to a meeting with Ewell, Early, and Rhodes, but no reference was made to the failure to take the heights that day. In answer to his inquiry as to whether the attack on the next day should be made on their front, Lee was astonished to hear all three express doubt as to the probability of success. Instead, they urged the assault be made on the other end of the line, while they took a defensive position. How different this must have seemed to Lee from his last meeting with Jackson on the cracker box at Chancellorsville. An interesting feature of this conference with Ewell, one to which Lee failed to attach any significance, was the dominant role played by Early while Ewell sat quietly. This too was a costly mistake, for from this Lee should have realized the quality of leadership he could expect in the future from the Second Corps commander. Lee then proposed that the Second Corps abandon its position on the left and move to the right to support the attack. Early disagreed, and Lee approved his proposal that Ewell hold his position so as to be able to make a demonstration at the sound of the guns of the main attack. However, after returning to Seminary Ridge, Lee reverted to his former idea of moving Ewell to the right end of the line. He sent a note to that effect to Ewell, but again it was not a firm order. Instead, only if Ewell was of the opinion the Second Corps could not be used to advantage where it was, should it be moved. Ewell felt he should stay where he was, and he wrote to Lee to tell him so. Lee consented, and the basic plan for the second day was established, an attack on the right coupled with a demonstration on the left. Again, Lee had made a decision, and it was wrong. Again, his penchant for discretionary orders had betrayed him. He had let a subordinate, whose performance had already been disappointing, talk him into maintaining a concave line over six miles in length, a line where communication between the wings was almost impossible, thus making coordination a hopeless dream. Also, as his headquarters was in the center, and he was sure to be in the area of the main attack on the second, it put Lee completely out of touch with his inexperienced Second Corps commander, who was obviously dominated by the irascible Jubal Early. At this point, perhaps we should say a word about another controversy that has risen from the ashes of Gettysburg. That is the theory that Lee ordered Longstreet to attack on the right at sunrise on the second day. However, as all of the modern authorities are in accord that this so-called sunrise order was never given, we shall not examine it in detail. Suffice it to say that not one shred of evidence exists to establish this cock-and-bull story dreamed up long after the war by Parson Pendleton. Each of Lee's staff officers affirmed that they were unaware of such an order. How could Lee have given the order to Longstreet when, subsequent to his parting with Longstreet on the night of the 1st, Lee discussed with the Second Corps officers where the attack should be made? Finally, how could Lee have considered making an attack at dawn with troops that were not even on the field the night before? Those troops, the divisions of Hood and McLaws, had camped the night of July 1st at Marsh Creek, approximately four miles from Gettysburg. They were under orders issued by Longstreet that night 
to speed their march the next day so as to arrive at the battlefield as soon as possible. The head of their column reached Seminary Ridge about daybreak, 6 o'clock on the 2nd. Longstreet himself had reached Lee's headquarters at 5 o'clock. Immediately, he began to argue for the cancellation of the attack plans and the adoption of the plan for the movement to the right. Lee, who was to suffer from an intestinal disorder all that day, refused to change his mind, and Longstreet again reverted to a bad humor, sulking noticeably. Lee stated that he had already sent out a reconnaissance party to the right under the command of Captain Johnston of his staff and was awaiting its return. At this point, you, Hill and then McLaws joined the conference. After much discussion, it is probable that Lee vocalized his decision to have Longstreet lead an attack on the right with Hood and McLaws and that Hill was to join in as the assault moved to the left. The attack itself was to follow the Emmitsburg Road, thus striking Cemetery Ridge obliquely north of the Roundtops. The apparent time of this decision was approximately 8 o'clock. In his three written accounts of the battle, Longstreet has stated variously that this plan was formulated at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, and 11 o'clock. Glenn Tucker, in his defense of Longstreet, has accepted the 11 o'clock version. I cannot agree. At the time of even his first account, Longstreet was already defending himself against charges of delay on the second. All of the contemporary evidence supports the formulation of the tactical plan by 8 o'clock in the morning. At this time, Hood arrived, and Lee said to him, quote, the enemy is here, and if we do not whip him, he will whip us, close quote. Longstreet whispered to Hood that Lee was nervous and wanted to attack but that Longstreet did not wish to do so without picket, as he did not like to go into battle with one boot off. Certainly this remark indicates Longstreet's state of mind at this time and his antagonism to the attack. Lee then began to discuss the plan with McLaws, who, misinterpreting Lee's remark about the time of Johnston's reconnaissance, which had already begun, indicated he wished to go along. Hearing this, Longstreet snapped that he did not want McClaws to leave his division. Lee then indicated on a map that he wanted McClaws to commence the attack from a position perpendicular to the Emmitsburg Road. Longstreet contradicted Lee by telling McClaws to place his troops parallel to the road, thus making a frontal instead of oblique attack on the ridge. Lee quietly corrected Longstreet and reiterated his desire on the matter. Johnston, having now returned, reported to the group his findings, which indicated nothing that would cause a revision in the plan. At 9 o'clock, Lee rode off to see Ewell to coordinate the proposed demonstration by the Second Corps, leaving Longstreet to commence his dispositions. During the conference just ended, Lee has again made serious mistakes. He has entrusted the major attack to a defensive-minded general who does not agree that it should be made. In fact, Longstreet has repeatedly argued against it. In so doing, Lee has selected as his spearhead two divisions who have just reached the field after a night's rest of only two hours and who still face an intricate march to reach their jumping off point. Wouldn't a better choice have been Anderson's division of Hill, which was already in position on the present right flank? Even more important, he has endured without rebuke an attitude by Longstreet that bordered on insubordination. A stern reprimand might have snapped Longstreet back to his prop 
proper duty of prompt obedience to orders. Is it any wonder that upon Lee's return to his headquarters at 11 o'clock, he finds that other than bringing up his artillery, Longstreet has done nothing. The march of his troops has not even begun. What occurred during those two hours has never been explained. Still failing to censure Longstreet, Lee does take the initiative by ordering Longstreet to proceed to the attack. However, Longstreet reminded Lee that Law's brigade of Hood's division is not yet up and requested permission to wait for it, an estimated delay of 45 minutes. Lee consented and then rode off to view the situation in his front. Law arrived by noon and the march of the two divisions began. What occurred during that march is also an unexplained area of controversy, if not slapstick comedy. Lee had placed Captain Johnston at Longstreet's disposal with the instructions that Johnston was to lead the march by a route that could, would be hidden from the Federal Signal Station on Round Top. Longstreet, in another example of his sulk, somehow managed to construe this to mean that Johnston had complete authority over the lead division, McClaws, while Longstreet himself had command only over Hood with whom he rode. The whole incident degenerated into a series of halts and countermarches, a trial and error procedure during which somehow Hood managed to pass McClaws and take the lead at times. In any event, it took three and a half hours to cover the five miles involved. Tucker, again attempting to absolve Longstreet of blame, states the march did not start until two o'clock, thus taking only one and a half hours. A review of all the contemporary evidence does not permit me to agree with him. The question can be raised, did Longstreet delay the march once it began? I think not. But he and Lee must share the responsibility for this fiasco. Lee assigned Johnston to guide the march, apparently without bothering to ascertain whether Johnston knew the route. He did not. His reconnaissance that morning had scouted the federal positions, not a concealed path behind Confederate lines that would be suitable for a hidden march. Once Lee had determined his course of action, his first move should have been to secure the proper route by sending out a party to plot the way. Longstreet himself, as commander of the troops involved, should have made certain before starting out that he was being led by a competent guide who knew exactly where he was going. He let his anger and disagreement with the plans obliterate from his mind his responsibilities. When McClaws, who was now back in the lead, finally reached his designated position, he found a totally different picture than what he had been led to expect. Instead of his overlapping the Union flank, which he thought would be resting somewhere in the air on Cemetery Ridge, as Johnston had reported it was at 8 o'clock that morning, McClaws was staring at the front of a strongly posted federal line running from a salient on the Emmitsburg Road at the Peach Orchard through the Devil's Den to the base of the Round Tops. The Union line overlapped McClaws. Again, basic staff work had been totally neglected by Lee and Longstreet. Instead of posting observers at the planned point of attack to watch Union movements, the two Confederate leaders had blithely assumed that the Federals would stay all day in the same position they had occupied at sunrise. And yet, with all of their mistakes, the good luck of the Confederates was holding. To understand why, we must examine the map. When Johnston made his reconnaissance, the Union left was on Cemetery Ridge, some distance north of Little Round Top. However, almost immediately after he had been there, the Federal Third Corps under Sickles 
had extended this line all the way south to Little Round Top, which troops of Bernie's division occupied. The Third Corps stayed in this position until 3 o'clock, when Sickles ordered it forward to take advantage of the higher ground in the vicinity of the Peach Orchard. Thus, if the Confederate attack had not been delayed until after 3 o'clock by Longstreet's procrastination in the morning and the confused march in the afternoon, Lee's plan of an attack up the road would have caused his troops to, mark, to march directly across the front of the Union line. The flank fire from Sickles' troops no doubt would have inflict, inflicted a devastating repulse. Faced with the existing situation, Longstreet ordered Hood to form on McClaw's right, thereby again establishing an overlap of the Federal flank. After Hood took his position, another strange incident occurred. From where he was, Hood had ascertained that no Federal troops were south of Round Top. More importantly, he could see the apparently unguarded Union wagon train behind the eminence. Hood immediately requested that Longstreet suspend the attack and allow Hood to pass around Big Round Top, attack the wagons, and get in the Federal rear. Here was Longstreet's golden opportunity. Was this not on a smaller scale his beloved theory of a move to the right? Lee's plan had been based on a situation that no longer existed. Surely Lee, if notified, would realize this and cancel the attack Longstreet had argued so hard against. Yet here, Longstreet changed to an attitude of strict obedience, thus exhibiting the depths to which his pouting had sunk. Without even communicating with Lee, whom he must have known was with Hill, Longstreet denied Hood's request, stating, quote, General Lee's orders are to attack up the road, close quote. Hood could not believe his ears, and three more times he sent the same request to Longstreet but each time the reply was the same without any attempt to contact Lee. Finally, at 4 o'clock, Hood gave up and ordered the attack to go forward. Perhaps we should note at this point that although Longstreet could not have known this, both the Federal 5th and 6th Corps were closer to the wagons than Hood was, and if Hood had received the permission he sought, in all probability he would have been destroyed. The partial success of the attack is well known, as the Federal line was pushed back to its original position on the ridge. However, taken as a whole, the action on the second day was a total failure for the Confederates, and once more the blame must fall on Lee. He had again left the tactical direction to a subordinate. Why was he not with Longstreet at the point of attack, so he himself could have examined and evaluated the change of situation? What good could he do by being at this time on Hill's front where no action was immediately anticipated? As long as he was with Hill, Lee must certainly shoulder the responsibility for the failure of more than two or three brigades of Hill's troops to join in and hammer home the attack. Most contemporary observers, including Longstreet, cited this lack of cooperation by Anderson's division as the major reason why a total victory was not obtained. Also, Ewell was to have made a demonstration at the sound of Longstreet's guns. Yet Ewell did nothing until long after Longstreet's attack had ended, thus enabling Meade to transfer troops from one flank to the other as needed. Where was Lee to compel Ewell to act at the proper time? In fact, there is little record of any activity by Lee and no record 
of orders sent by him during the fighting that day. Once the attack began, he seems to have become strictly a spectator without purpose or function. Can this be the proper role of an army commander? On the night of July 2nd, Longstreet, contrary to his custom, did not go to Lee's headquarters. However, Lee did have a very welcome visitor in the person of the mounted marauder. Stewart had finally arrived on the field late that afternoon. Another arrival at the same time with, was Pickett with his division. In his report of the battle, Lee claimed that he gave orders that night to both Longstreet and Ewell to renew the attack the next morning. He specified no exact time. Longstreet denied that such orders were ever given. It is known that Ewell, under orders or not, planned to attack on the left at dawn, but the Federals beat him to it and pushed him back in a spirited assault. Longstreet certainly did not act as though he had been ordered to attack. On the night of the second, he sent scouts out to reconnoiter past the Confederate right flank, and they reported no Federals in the area. The next morning, Lee rode to Longstreet's headquarters, and as soon as he dismounted, Longstreet related to him what his scouts had found. Then, unbelievably, Longstreet revealed that without consulting Lee, he had already drafted orders for his beloved movement to the right. Vigorously, he presented the details of his plan and the arguments in its favor. Even more unbelievably, Lee again listened without voicing any reprimand, either for Longstreet's failure to even prepare for an attack or for his preparation of unauthorized orders. When Longstreet was through, Lee verbalized his conviction that the proper course of action was an attack on the Union left center by the whole First Corps. According to Longstreet, Lee then pointed towards Cemetery Ridge and said, quote, the enemy is there and I am going to strike him, close quote. The size of the force indicated by Lee for the attack was 15,000 men. Longstreet continued to argue, stating that not less than 30,000 men could successfully execute the assault. At this point, Lee finally showed impatience with further discussion, and Longstreet turned away to begin the arrangements. Soon, however, he was back, this time to protest the composition of the attacking column. He stated that Hood and McClaws were the right flank element of the army, had no supports, and had been badly hurt by the fighting the day before. Therefore, he insisted they not be included with Pickett. On this point, Lee let Longstreet prevail. Lee designated Heath's division under Pettigrew and half of Pender's division under Trimble to replace Hood and McClaws. Longstreet was far from satisfied with this one concession, but nonetheless proceeded to prepare. To reduce the time needed to assemble the troops for the assault, the path of the charge was moved to the left so that the target point was almost directly in the Union center. The farthest stretch of military logic cannot justify Lee's decision to make this attack. What could have possessed him to attempt with only 15,000 men a charge of 1,400 yards over open fields? The Federal troops would have a clear field of fire, and, the art and their artillery on Little Round Top and Cemetery Hill would have a field day enfilading the Confederate lines. All prospect for cooperation from Ewell had been eliminated by his heavy fight and defeat that morning. Again, the answer to Lee's determination must be in his overconfidence in the ability of his troops and in his spirit of combat, his love for the pageantry of lines of men crowned by a sea of battle flags moving forward to face the foe. 
Whether on the third day Lee considered seriously to move to the right is very doubtful. If he did not, he was wrong. It certainly would not have been difficult to steal a march on Meade, especially with Pickett's unfought division available to take the lead. The old excuse of the lack of cavalry to scout the way was no longer valid, for Stuart was up at last. Yet Lee sent him to the left to pass the Union flank there, not to the right to find a position between the Army of the Potomac and Washington. To make the prospect for success even dimmer, the organization of the charge was a comedy of errors. For this, the blame must rest on Lee and to some degree on Longstreet. The decision by Lee to utilize the divisions of Heath and Pender showed a complete lack of attention to the facts. Both units had been badly hurt on the first day and both had lost their commanders. The designation also by Lee of Longstreet as the general in charge of the attack is incredulous. His fervent opposition to the plan was obvious. His mood that morning was noticeably one of black gloom. He was to admit later that never in his life was he as despondent as on July 3rd, 1863. Longstreet had absolutely no confidence in the move he was directing. In fact, he was certain of defeat. Under these circumstances, even a drummer boy would have been a better choice than Longstreet. On the debit side of Longstreet's ledger is the failure to properly supervise the positioning of the brigades for the assault. This must have been due to apathy brought on by his mood. As a result, the left of the column, which was composed of weak troops who would be exposed to heavy enfilade fire, consisted of only one line, while the center had two. In addition, Longstreet never communicated with Ewell or Hill as to what support he expected or could expect from either. As usual, Confederate staff work was non-existent. No one bothered to inform either Lee or Longstreet of the artillery ammunition shortage, which was to curtail the preparatory barrage and threaten the Army's safety after the repulse. Not until the charge was underway did Longstreet learn that the figurehead chief of artillery, Pendleton, had come out of hiding long enough to order the withdrawal of the howitzer battery that was to accompany and support the assault. The story of the charge and its defeat is well known to all. Thus, we have come full circle to where we began, with Lee acknowledging the fault was his, and so it was. The repulse on the third day finally opened his eyes to what he himself had done to his army and to his cause. Certainly in his defense, it can be said that each of his subordinates had performed poorly. Stuart was lost, Hill was sick, as he was to always be at the time of battle. Ewell was indecisive and easily dominated. And finally, Longstreet, who, although usually right in theory, had sulked and pouted like a spoiled child, thus failing in his duty as an officer to obey to the best of his ability the orders of his superior. But over it all had been Lee, and his sins were the worst. Overconfidence, inability to control his emotions, failure to exercise sound military judgment, failure to de decisively direct and control his subordinates so as to eliminate their faults. The indictment goes on and on, but added up, it spelled defeat for brave men who, if properly led, might have won a victory that could have changed the course of the war. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Marshal. Thank you very much, Marshal. Now, as, as our custom, we're going to turn you over to the group. I'm not writing shotgun for you. There's no questions. questions. Good, we'll leave. <laughs> You're not going to let him get off this easy. Warren? Uh, Marshal, you said that we uh, did not believe that generals should interfere in the tactical aspects of battle. Commanding generals. Commanding general. Yes. Now, was this generally released position in the rest of his life and in other battles? Is it also that of successful generals in general? Uh, I don't take it in reverse. I don't think it is the the way to fight a battle, uh, especially in those days. Uh, Now it's a different story uh, with modern technology, but in those days I don't think it was. Uh, I don't think any uh, great Civil War general did that type of thing. Uh, Jackson in the Valley was always where the fighting was the heaviest. Uh, Grant was always tried to be at least behind the lines in the center where the action was taking place. There's the story at the Lacey House where he's or in the wilderness where he's suddenly whittling on a stick. But you, in the same story, you see the couriers are consistently going and coming at all times. Um, Lee was accustomed to having Jackson do what he was, you know, what they had worked out. Uh, Chancellorsville is the best example of that. Uh, I don't think this is the way to fight. Yet it was his his uh, his theory of war. It is uh, a consistent theme in his writings after the war, in letters and things like that that I've read. Uh, that a general decides on the plan and then tells his subordinates what to do, and they go out and do it. Uh, especially taking into account, even if such an idea could work, taking into account what he had to work with. He had no business doing such a thing. He, didn't ha- he was fighting an offensive battle without any offensive generals. Um, he had to be in the center of the action, and that's exactly where he never was. Anybody else? Is there, is there any uh, evidence to show that Lincoln's attitude towards the Washington make it pretty well known? Is there any evidence to show that? Uh, was aware of Lincoln's attitude and possibly have uh, anticipated if the Army of Northern Virginia had been interposed between Washington and me, uh, what Lincoln's reaction would have been towards me. I think that, uh, that Lee must have realized. I've never seen anything to that extent except that I think it was universally recognized in those days that war was like a game of chess. You captured the other guy's king and the, and the, and the game was over. Uh, and the king was the capital. At least that's the way it was fought in the first three years of the war anyway. Um, I think that, that Lee realized that his real enemy was the Army of the Potomac, but that the best way to beat the Army of the Potomac was to have, him, have it pound itself to, to, to death against him. And the best way to do that would have to be to get between Washington and, and Meade. Uh, not only so much as to be closer to the capital, but he would have cut Meade's supply line. Uh, the funny thing is that if, if, if Lee had followed Longstreet's plan, which was a good one and would have worked, I think, he probably would have taken up a position along Pipe Creek, which is exactly where Meade intended to go on the morning of July 1st. I'm sure most of us are familiar with the Pipe Creek Circular, which Meade sent around the morning of July 1st before he knew that Buford was fighting at Gettysburg. Um, 
in which he proposed that it, if uh, circumstances would warrant, uh, the Army would take up a position along Pipe Creek in Maryland, even to the extent that he spelled out where each corps was to go. Uh, however, the fighting of Buford and later of Reynolds at Gettysburg changed the whole thing. But that would have been a perfect place for Lee to go. And if he would have taken up a position along Pipe Creek, Meade would have had no choice but to attack him. Started your comments shortly after the battle of Chancellorsville. But I think you should have started with the first time Lee allowed Longstreet to talk back to him procrastinate was at the second battle of Bull Run. When Longstreet came up perpendicular to Jackson. It took him something like three hours before he launched his attack. That that's sure that's true, but it's an, a perfect example of Longstreet from which Lee learned nothing. Longstreet was in his glory at Second Bull Run. He had a defensive position, and he just sat there and waited for uh, uh, the Union uh, troops to march across his front. Uh, I think that's correct. I think there's no question but that, that Longstreet's uh, theory prevailed there, but it was a defensive theory. And here at Gettysburg, Lee was trying to get him to do something offensive, which Longstreet never did. It, I think, in my opinion, there seems to be a mania here that goes back to the teachings of West Point goes back to the Mexican War. As we go through the Eastern campaigns, we find inevitably a Union general or a Confederate general gets in his head that we are going to mass a mass of men and we're going to march shoulder to shoulder and we're going to break the line of the opposing man. And this is the old theory of warfare that dates back to the before the Mexican War Revolution. And it, it looks what when you when you talked about Lee's original plan to go across. Uh, the Emmitsburg Road in an oblique manner. once again it shows if you look at the map that he's going back to the Mexican War and if you look at Pope at Manassas and if you look at Grant in 64 at, at uh, um, uh, Cold Harbor it's the same thing all over again and I think if we look at that in the light that these men are reflecting back to past teachings it's, it's, and it has a lot to do with it. I would it. agree, and I think you even take it one step farther, and, and again, you can find a criticism of Lee, and he, didn't, he never, at least at Gettysburg, didn't realize that he couldn't afford the type of losses that Grant could afford in 64. Uh, and yet, you know, the mass battle was, was exactly the way he fought, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the golden age of conflict. I think it should be interesting to point out, too, that Confederate... The Confederates did have one piece of very bad luck on the, on the morning of July 2nd. When Johnston made his reconnaissance, he got to the area of the Cemetery Ridge at about 8 o'clock. He found it, uh, the southern end of it, near the Round Tops, unguarded. Uh, nobody there. But the strange thing was that that half hour was the only time that there was nobody there. If he had gotten there at 7.30 or at 8.30, he would have found Union troops there. Uh, during the night, that area was garrisoned by Ge um, Geary's division of the 12th Corps. They were ordered by Meade to go over to Culp's Hill when they were relieved by Sickles. But Gary misunderstood the orders, and he thought that he was supposed to leave immediately without waiting for Sickles. And he did. He left. Johnston, he leaves. Johnston comes, finds nobody there. Johnston leaves, and Sickles comes. So only during that one half hour was there nobody there. Assuming that Hood had gotten his ill-advised attack off on the wagon train, do you think it really would have changed Lee's strategy 
seeing Hood's command wiped out, considering that he continued to base his attacks on the hopes of shattered troops uh, continuing to do the impossible. I don't think that, first of all, I don't think that Lee would have changed his opinion. I don't think Lee would have let Hood go around, but assuming that he would have, um, I think that that would have been the end of the battle. I think if Hood would have tried that, the, uh, Lee would have had no choice but to reinforce him, and I think that that position with the, with the Federals attacking from the heights down on the reverse slopes, I think Lee would have been wiped out. Uh, first of all, his army would have been cut in two because the Federals could have easily penetrated between Longstreet and Anderson, uh, Anderson's division of Hill where there was a large gap already. And so his need would have been between the two wings of, uh, of Lee's army, and uh, I think it would have been a very bad scene for the Confederates. Yes. Uh, how much do you attribute uh, Lee's defeat to uh, the death of Jackson? Every time I have given this talk, that question has been asked, and it's a very good question. Um, you know, it's one of those great things, you know, if. Uh, who knows? I think that if Jackson would have been at Gettysburg, the whole battle would have been different. It probably wouldn't have even been fought there. But assuming for a moment that it would have been fought there, the whole thing would have been different. Because first of all, Jackson would have been on the, conf on the federal flank first thing in the morning. Um, he would not have sat around and waited all day. And he would have not have had a, a march like, like Longstreet led, which, I mean, if you've ever gone over that ground, it's just unreal what they did. They were seen. That march was seen from almost a minute it left. And yet for two and a half or three and a half hours, they consistently made attempts not to be seen. And yet they could see the federal signal station looking right at them half the time. And uh, I don't, the whole thing would have been different. I think Jackson, I'm not a great admirer of Jackson. I think he had his faults at times. But I think that Lee probably could have won a victory there if he had had a Jackson or any offensive general. Oh. On the first day, uh, there's no question that he wouldn't have even had to order uh, Jackson. Uh, Jackson would have been up those heights before he'd leave and knew what was happening. Jackson would have never stopped in the town as Ewell did. <laughs> well, I, you know, as far as the too dark, no. The, the route through the town was at 4 o'clock. Uh, uh, Lee sent a courier to Ewell telling him to attack if practicable, uh, or suggesting that he attack if practicable, at 4.30. This was the middle of July. Certainly the light was more than adequate for quite a bit of fighting yet on the day. Keep in mind that Ewell attacked on the second day at 7 o'clock. So obviously if there was enough light on the second day, there would have been enough light on the first day. Um, as to the other suggestion, uh, yes, uh, well, it, it's not a southern question of Longstreet being a southern gentleman. It's Lee. Lee was uh, the sh uh, chivalry, the knight of old, a southern gentleman. Uh, all of that went to make up his personality, and it's for that reason that I don't think that he is the great commander that um, southerners uh, hold him out to be. He was a great man, and he was uh, kind to his troops, and all of these other things. But a great general, I don't think so. Brings you back to Lloyd Lewis's famous crack. You know, the trouble is the South is they believed in Ivanhoe. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's very true. Yeah. It is retrospectively, though, uh, if you take a look at Missionary Bridge, uh, it, after all, it did work. One time it worked for Thomas. 
And that was a tougher rich than cemetery rich. Well, that's of course is true, and that's one of those things that's hard to explain. But you see, you've got to take two things into into a. First of all, I think the biggest thing in Cemetery Ridge was morale. Uh, the southern troops, uh, you could have shot off a pop gun and they would have run like hell. Uh, you, the Army of the Potomac, for all of its losses, the Army of the Potomac was a great army. Its generals were lousy uh, until Meade, who I think, you know, Meade does not get the credit which he is due for Gettysburg or for the battles after Gettysburg. But uh, the Army of the Potomac was one hell of a good army and there's no way, there's absolutely no way that Lee would have been able to pull a missionary ridge or anything else on the Army of the Potomac. First of all, their position was different from Missionary Ridge in that it was bent at both ends so that either end was closer to the center than Lee was. Um, and this, I think, is the important thing. Um, at one time during, and this gets back to Ewell and his whatever he was doing, I don't know. Uh, at one time during the second day, Longstreet's attack on the second day, Culp's Hill was held by one brigade. Green's brigade was the only brigade on Culp's Hill. Because Meade was just sending all the troops there to support uh, the, the Cemetery Ridge position. But Ewell never attacked until 7 o'clock when everybody had already come back. Um, it's, a, it's a perfect example of a piecemeal uh, situation. Uh, Hill and Ewell are perfect examples of the Peter Principle. Uh, they rose as, as high as they could and then they were worthless. Uh, there's so many examples of that in the Civil War, you could write a book on that alone. Anybody else? Yeah, that's very true. And it, well, it, I, I shouldn't, in, not in most of his battles, in most of his battles till 64. Um, but he had a Jackson. He, he had a Jackson to go out and do the offensive striking, and he had a Longstreet to sit there and wait for the hammer to push it against the anvil. Uh, in 64, when the quality of his generalship, uh, the generals under him changed, I think he did get a little more specific. And also he was fighting a different war in 64. It was trench warfare, it was interior line warfare, and it was a completely different situation. The enemy was attacking him. He really didn't, the question of discretion or no discretion was not there. Discretion is most important in offensive situations, not in defensive situations. And after 64, Lee was defensive the entire time. Well, for first thing, because uh, the Union troops were on the crest of the hill behind a stone wall in the area and behind a, a grove, you know, the famous clump of trees. And the Confederate gunners were making so much smoke, if you've ever seen a Civil War artillery fire, they really couldn't see what they were shooting at. Uh, and then, too, you had the problem uh, that uh, General Hunt did a job on Pendleton, I, uh, not on Pendleton, on uh, Alexander. Uh, there was a a bunch of guns in the... Well, first of all, Hunt ordered the Union guns to stop firing. So right then, uh, Alexander felt that he had silenced the guns or else they were out of ammunition. Second of all, he ordered the withdrawal of a battery from the, gr the clump of trees and the angle of the stone wall. When uh, Alexander saw, saw that, in fact, that's the famous message which triggered Pickett's charge, come quick, the 18 guns are gone. Uh, he thought the Union troops were pulling out and the barrage had had an effect. In fact, all Hunt was doing was shifting a, a battery that was out of ammunition for a fresh one. And by the time the charge started, there were 18 and more guns back there again. But the Confederates just didn't realize because of the smoke and the, the explosions. And the fact that, and this is a strange thing, 
most of the, the Union troops came forward during the barrage, came over on the other side of the stone wall and down on the front side of the slope because they realized the Confederates were firing over their heads. And they laid down in the grass and in the fields, and the Confederates just didn't see them there. Marshal, on the, in the further examination of the lack of initiative on the part of people like Hill and Ewell, comment. Both of them were fresh from the tender mercies of command by Stonewall Jackson, where uh, initiative on the part of a commander was liable to get the guy court-martialed. A long history of it going back to Kernstown. I don't think that this kind of a commander builds a general who will use initiative. That's very, very true, and a good point, Charlie. Another thing is that Jackson was very close-mouthed. He never shared with his subordinates the orders that he had received. They didn't know what he was doing. They had no idea. If Jackson had ever been, been well, it's a perfect example of Chancellorsville. Uh, Jackson intended to continue to attack and to try and interpose between the Union Army and the river to cut off their retreat. But nobody knew that's what he wanted to do, so nobody did it. Of course, Hill was shot, and uh, there was a void of command there, but nobody knew that's what he intended to do. He never told his subordinates, so they never had an opportunity to participate in the planning, to, to take initiative, to learn how to exercise discretion. It's a very good point. They weren't trained for it. Dan? Excellent point. That's right. Another question on this. Was there any attempt to coordinate the cavalry attack, which was supposed to circle around the Union Army coming from the other side, with Longstreet? Oh, yes. Was he aware of it? Oh, yes. He sent Stuart around to the back, to the East Cavalry Battlefield, solely for the purpose of attacking from the rear, as Longstreet was their picket was attacking from the front. The only problem with that is that Stuart got his rear end whipped by Gregg and Custer. And he never got around to the rear. Well, first of all, Stuart, in another exercise of his brilliance, and I'm no Stuart fan, uh, uh, he, he, went, he got up on a position on the ridge up there, and instead, instead of, you know, hiding the fact he was there, he fires off a cannon. For, For what, what purpose has never been explained, but he fired off a cannon. Greg, and, who had just given the approval for Custer to go back to the left flank, said, wait a minute, you know, who's over there? And, and Greg and Custer took up their positions and, and beat him when he tried to attack. If he hadn't fired that cannon, it might have been a completely different story. And, uh, you know, I don't know what he was doing, cleaning the bore or something, but <laughs> the gun was fired at his specific, at Stuart's personal specific order. And he's never, he never in any of his reports explained why. You should point out, Marshal, that's Custer's first fight. As a general. Well, it's not really. Who ordered, uh, Hanover. Who ordered uh, Stuart to attack? Was it Longstreet? Lee. Lee. And Longstreet couldn't order Stuart because uh, Stuart was equal. Stuart was an equal. Stuart was a corps commander. Was it coordinated? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, 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 the timing was, uh, it was coordinated, and Longstreet was supposed to attack. Uh, Stuart was supposed to attack when the cannonade ended. But he had, already, he had already fired off his signal gun saying, here I am, come get me, and he got beat. And, of course, Lee had no way of knowing that because the distance between their, the, the Union Army was between he and Stuart. He had no way of knowing that Stuart had been beaten. Anything else? I can't agree with your
from peace in his own mind. So I don't think that this uh, feeling that you pointed out uh, was universal in his, in his mind throughout the whole war. Don, you see, that's, the, that's my whole point. I agree with you in this respect. When it was quiet and he was sitting in his tent writing letters to his wife or planning strategy in Richmond with the cabinet or talking to Longstreet in a tent on the Rapidan or Rappahannock, he, that's the way he was. But as soon as he got into a battle where the guns were firing and the troops were charging and the flags were waving, he lost his cool. His adrenaline started pumping, and he only could he all he could do was fight. And I think that is the difference. Otto Eisenhower pointed out years ago, you know, this is true. The moment you know 